We're looking this morning at the subject, the hurt of unsaved family and friends. And if you'll note in your bulletin outline, the first thing I have listed there is the obstinate or indifferent husband or father. It is statistically true that when it comes to faith and worship, the church is likely to be weighted more heavily towards women being Christians than men. In my ministry of 50 years, the churches I have pastored have been populated with many divided families. And the family member who has been saved and serving Christ in his church has been the women. We learned last week that Paul restricted the teaching positions of the church to men because Adam was created first. And so wears that teaching hat. And Eve was deceived by the serpent and became the first sinner. And Christ's church needs discerning people in leadership roles. That being said, where are the men taking the lead in the church? Now, I'm not speaking of any particular church, not even our own necessarily. I'm speaking in general terms. But if the shoe fits, put it on. Be man enough to put it on. Where are the men doing the teaching? Being involved in outreach, in works of benevolence, instructing children, yes, instructing children. The men are noticeably absent. Why are the women interested in spiritual education and worship of God while the men stay home and watch TV or head out for the golf course on Sunday? Culturally, there has been a shift In the 50s, when I was growing up, dads did not send their children to church. They took them to church. I had male Sunday school teachers along with women Sunday school teachers. The men taught prayer service. They organized mission conferences. They aided the pastor in outreach and visitation. Christianity was not simply for women and children. It began with the family head and filtered down to all of the remaining family set by his example. And then came the 60s. Suddenly everyone was asserting their independence from the moral and spiritual rule of society. Women burned their bras and men grew long hair and beards. And tie-dye t-shirts replaced a white shirt and a tie. Blue jeans became the standard wear for all occasions, even the worship hour. Men were belittled. They were railed upon for their leadership. They were called chauvinistic pigs. And almost, almost imperceptibly, the men began to abdicate headship in the home, to steer clear of autocratic authority, including the authority of God over their lives and over their family responsibilities. The feminist movement infiltrated the church and the women got something that they didn't bargain for. Husbands and fathers who no longer had any time for God or for spiritual things. These things, like the more mundane things of life, were left for the women and the children as the men kind of bowed out of any religious involvement in the things of God. This move has been so radical, so pervasive, that today we have women elders, 
and women pastors. Why? Because the men have bowed out. They're not going to seminary. Even in the Roman Catholic Church, there's a push for women to be priests. The church is fighting that, but why are they, why are they having that problem? Because men are not going into the priesthood, that's why. They've abdicated all in the spiritual realm to their wives, to the mothers. You take the kids to Sunday school. You have family devotions and so on. Not counting the lead position in the church, we do not have male teachers and leaders in other areas of church life. The husbands can't be bothered now with spiritual things. Let the women pray, let the women study, let them teach, let them attend church. But not me. I don't have time for such foolishness. Not always, not always, but sometimes this, the husband becomes like Nabal, we read in scripture. Nabal in nature. Nabal was a husband to Abigail in Old Testament times. If you read the account, he refused to supply David with necessary foodstuffs even after David and his men had protected Nabal's servants from raiders as they watched over Nabal's livestock. So when David came and asked for food and help, Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and my water and the meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to a man coming from who knows where? 1 Samuel 25, verse 10 and 11. I read that and I say, well, why? Why, why would Nabal react so harshly to a man, in this case David, who had treated him so kindly? Well, verse 3 of that chapter says this. He was mean and surly in his dealings. That's who he was by nature. His own servant's evaluation was this. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Chapter 25, verse 17. Well, David was on his way to slaughter every male heir of Nabal's family for the insult, but his wife Abigail interceded with food to feed David's men. But listen carefully to her interpretation of the events. May my Lord, she's talking to David, Lord little L, not Lord capital L. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man Nabal. So she's talking about her husband here. He is just like his name. His name is full, F-O-O-L. His name is Fool, and folly goes with him. And Nabal is the Hebrew, one of the Hebrew words for fool. So she's just saying, hey, he's living up to his name. He's a fool. That's his name, and that's what he does. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. I didn't see the guys that came from, from you. Now, since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend harm to my master be like Nabal. And let this gift, which your servant has brought to my master, be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense, 
For the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master, because he fights the Lord's battles. And David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping from me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. 1 Samuel 25, verse 25 and following. Now it's obvious when we read an account like this that Abigail is a believer. But Nabal is a fool. And he's a fool in this sense. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, writes the psalmist. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men, the male heirs, to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. And all have turned aside. They have, made together, they have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 14, 1 to 3. And Paul quotes that. In Romans chapter 3, when he talks about the fact that there's none righteous, no, not one. What I am saying is that Abigail had to bear the heartache and the burden of living with a man whose only thought was of making money and the expansion of his ranching empire. His stingy, idol-loving heart would not even allow him to be generous to David and his men in gratitude for David's protection and care over his herdsmen and his flocks. When Abigail confessed to Nabal how she had helped David, the scripture says that his heart failed him and he became like a stone. 1 Samuel 25, verse 37. And the next verse says, About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Death, brethren, ends all appeals to God. Death is final. Isaiah writes, For the grave cannot praise you, death cannot sing your praise. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. Isaiah 38, verse 18. Believing wives and children bear the pain of a husband and father whose obstinacy towards God may find them eternally lost. It's a great burden on family. So, if mother or wife preaches to you, it's because they love you. And they don't want to see this kind of thing happen. Now, secondly, there's the pain of an unbelieving wife or mother. And this is simply the shoe on the other foot. Just as there are believing women whose husbands have not the least time of the day for God and spiritual things, so there are men whose wives and mothers of their children are totally oblivious to spiritual realities. Solomon, who had a thousand wives, knew something, <laughs> something about the pain of seeing many of them cold and callous towards the things of God. They influence him for evil, but somehow he was not able to influence them for good. The scripture says, 1 Kings 11 verse 1, King Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughters, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They're listed there. All those various 
nationalities. Not one of them godly, by the way. All of them idolatrous nations. Nehemiah gives this commentary. Now this is years later, but here's what he writes. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Nehemiah 13, verse 26. What can be said of these wives apart from the vast number of them? Egyptians, Moabites, Ammonites. Moabites, Ammonites. These were the pagan tribes, the offspring of Lot's drunken and incestuous union with his two daughters. Two nations came from him. Edomites. They were the descendants of wicked Esau. Sidonians. Ahab married Jezebel, a Sidonian, who introduced Baal worship and Asherah pole worship into Israel. Hittites. Descendants of Noah's grandchild Canaan cursed for sinning against him. Wow, what a prize. All these women. Now many of these marriages were politically correct unions for the sake of keeping peace, but all of them were a violation of God's command. Let me read it for you. When the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, those nations, and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. The Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly be destroyed. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. That would be the bales. Cut down their Asherah poles. And burn their idols in the fire. Deuteronomy 7, verses 2 through 5. That's how God instructed His people to deal with the foreign nations. Well, as we read, Solomon disobeyed. And the consequences are reflected in some of his Proverbs. Let me read some for you. Solomon. Better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Proverbs 21, verse 9. Repeated in Proverbs 25, verbatim. Proverbs 25, verse 24. Ten verses later, verse 19. Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife. Verse 19. Again, a foolish son is his father's ruin, and a quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping. Proverbs 19, verse 13. Same theme. A quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping on a rainy day. Restraining her is like restraining the wind or grasping oil with the hands. Proverbs 27, verse 15 and 16. Would you say he's having some trouble in his home, in his domestic sphere? Or again, listen to... Chapter 15, verse 17. Better a meal of vegetables where there's love than a fattened calf with hatred. Or again, better a dry crust 
with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Proverbs 17, verse 1. He's saying, great cooks, great housekeepers, but full of strife, devoid of love. That's my house. Quarrelsome wife or an ill-tempered wife that makes Solomon wish to live in isolation is due to the sinful, unrestrained lifestyle of his foreign wives who had no love nor appreciation for God or for biblical morality and discipline. The Baal and the Asherah worship introduced by Jezebel were sex cults involving prostitution and the like. Her willingness to have Naboth murdered to obtain his vineyard for her husband showed her ruthless nature. She's the same wife who set out to kill Elijah the prophet because he opposed her wicked priests and religion. And Ahab was just as wicked as her, so they were two peas in a pod. But what a heartache for Solomon to marry Sidonian women and many other foreign women. Wives who had no time for Jehovah as they pressed Solomon to placate them with the construction of worship centers for their idols. One of the reforms of godly King Josiah, a boy king who came after Solomon, was this. And we read about it in the scriptures. To desecrate, this is King Josiah, one of his reforms was to desecrate the high places that were east of Jerusalem on the south of the hill of corruption. The ones Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the vile goddess of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the vile god of the Moabites, and for Molech, the detestable god of the people of Amnon, 2 Kings 23. Verse 13, Solomon did that. He built those places for his pagan wives. Because of his own disobedience, Solomon's wives perished in their sin. And he had to bear the hurt of his own involvement in their idolatry and his inability to win them over to the worship of the only true God and Savior of men, the Lord Jehovah. Compromise is always deadly in the area of spiritual things. And the hurt of such, the hurt of such is unfathomable. That is why Paul exhorts Christian singles, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14. But he also acknowledges that God sometimes Sometimes he saves one unbelieving spouse and not the other. So people, two people are married. They're both unsaved. They're living their life. One of them is saved, not the other. And now we have a mixed marriage. So what, what happens then? Well, he writes about that in 1 Corinthians. To the rest I say this, I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, 
And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 14. So what he's saying is something like this. So long as the marriage is held intact, there is a godly influence of a believing spouse, be it a husband or a wife, and the hope in God, the hope in God is that God will make them one in spirit as well as one in body. But if you leave, if you divorce them, if you take that Christian witness outside of the home, then that hope is not there. Because the best hope is for them to have someone living the gospel in front of them and setting the godly example. So there's the pain of an unbelieving and obstinate husband, and then there's the pain of an unbelieving wife and maybe the mother of your children. Now thirdly, there's the pain of the unbelieving child or grandchild. Moms and dads alike are burdened with the pain of a rebellious son or daughter who spurns their parental leadership towards godly things and chooses instead the allurement and the lust of the world's idolatry. In our day, such allurements are iPods and MP3 players and movies and games and sex and riotous living and drunkenness. In King David's day, it was lust, sexual lust, but also for money and gold and prestige and recognition and power and the king's crown. And Absalom fell victim to all of these things. His lust for prestige and recognition is demonstrated in the fact, and I'm reading scripture here, he would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. And whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? And he would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Remember now that there's the northern tribes and then there's the southern tribes. Your, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, look, um, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who had a complaint or a case could come to me and I would see that he receives justice. Oh yeah, right. Now he's saying in no uncertain terms that David, his father, would not dispense justice, but he would. Reading on, also, when, everyone, when anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. It says Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. 2 Samuel 15, verse 2 through 6. Let me say, he did not care that the people got justice in the king's court. He simply wanted to shift the loyalty of subjects from David to himself. And it worked. I mean, it worked. The gullible people bought into the deception, and Absalom was soon 
in a position to rival David for his throne. David and his palace guard were forced to flee Jerusalem and then and then and then to add insult to injury, we read Ahithophel, Ahithophel, David's longtime advisor and friend, advised Absalom, get this, lie with your father's concubines whom he's left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself an offense to your father's nostrils, and the hands of everyone with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. This is of the palace, and he lay with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. 2 Samuel 16, verse 21 and 22. Does that sound like a godly son to you? It can be said of Absalom what God concluded about Esau, whom, he, whom we noted last week, married pagan women despite his father. The writer of Hebrews says, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Hebrews 12, verse 60, the spiritual rights. He didn't want to have anything to do with God. That's why he despised the birthright. That's why he's willing to sell it for a bowl of bean soup. It was nothing. It's not a jewel, not a prize, not something you hang on to. The grief of David expressed in our text, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. That grief was obviously sparked by the news that Absalom had been killed in battle. But there's something more here. David knew that Absalom died not only as a rebel against the Lord's anointed, the king, yeah, but as a rebel against God. That's a hard pill to swallow. And if you look at Absalom's history, I mean, it was one of defiance against the written law of God in many, many areas. He orchestrated the murder of his brother Amnon for defiling his sister Tamar. And then he fled and aligned himself with, of all people, the Philistines, the arch enemy of Israel, and of David in particular. And then upon his return to Jerusalem, Absalom spent four years wooing the allegiance of the people to consider him a better judge in matters over David, which we just read about. That's what he did for the next four years. And next, he requested David to send him to Hebron so he could fulfill an alleged vow of thanksgiving to God. You know, I made this vow. I need to go back there and so, so forth. When in reality, he was using Hebron as the rally point for all of Israel to declare him king. When you hear the trumpets in Hebron, declare me king. And it worked. David had to flee Jerusalem. Now these are all signs of a wicked, godless man whose only ambition was to promote himself while dethroning his own father. David's grief 
At Absalom's death and his willingness to have died in his place is reminiscent of Paul's love for his people when he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. Romans 9, verse 2 and 3. There's a great love here for Absalom, even though he's such a wicked man. There is great pain of heart when parents contemplate that eternity may find them deprived of a son or daughter or a grandchild who because of their own stubbornness and rebellion to the gospel will be lost forever from sight and sound and memory of God's grace spurned and rejected. If David did not love Absalom so much, he would not have grieved so inconsolably. Young people, if Christian parents did not love you, their children, their grief would be lightened as well. But parents cannot make you believe. They cannot convince you of your need. All they can do is pray that God will open your eyes and will open your heart to Him and bring you and expose you to the gospel. I can see there's a lot of heartache here. These are people we love. Husbands, wives, children, grandchildren. So the second point in the outline, what are the remedies for your pain over the spiritually lost of your family? Number one, I'm going to start with the children and work back. Parents with an unbelieving child. Poor David, here he is. Weeping uncontrollably over twice dead Absalom, dead physically, the victim of war, but also dead spiritually as one who opposed God's anointed. There were three offices that received anointing in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, king. David didn't say to God, make me king. None of the prophets, make me prophet. God chose, God anointed. And so when Absalom opposed the anointed king, who was David, in so doing he opposed God himself. Do you remember that David would not lay hand on Saul? King Saul? And why would he not lay hand on King Saul? His answer was, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now, David even had a promise. You're going to be king. Saul's going to be booted out. And so David could have thought, well, I'll just help the Lord along a little bit. And on a number of occasions, you remember from your history, from your biblical history, on a number of occasions, he could have taken Saul's life. He could have. One time he went right down while he was sleeping at night, stuck a javelin in the ground, his own javelin. So the next day Saul woke up and huh, there was David's javelin. Which just was a, a, a nice way of David saying, you know, instead of sticking it in the ground, I could have stuck it in your chest. But he would not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed, even though Saul was his enemy. Now David was not Absalom's enemy. Absalom made it so. What could David have done 
to avoid this tension. Could such rebellion in Absalom have been stifled or defused or redirected in the form of loyalty to God and loyalty to king? Most do not recall that David had another son named Adonijah, who, similar to Absalom, attempted a coup of David when David was old, in his old age, when, of course, he would be more vulnerable. And the writer of 1 Kings gives this explanation of why that would happen. Here's what he says. His father, that is David, his father had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? Oh, and then this little almost seeming addition in the verse. He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. 1 Kings 1, verse 6. You get it? Absalom and Adonijah, brothers born back to back, and though not twins, they shared a rebel heart against God and against King David. What went wrong? The writer tells us, David could not bring himself to discipline these boys. And so when they became men, they just did what they wanted with no restraint, as they had always done. They turned out bad, and David's parental failure contributed to that. This is why so much of the Proverbs, written by another of David's sons, Solomon, have so much to say about using the rod and reproof to drive the folly out of sinful children. Folly being not silliness, but sinfulness. And in the New Testament, we have the Apostle Paul saying, Fathers, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6, verse 4. And this involves not only corporal punishment for sin, but instruction in righteousness and in the things of God and exposure to the gospel as often as the doors of the church are open and God's word is being preached. Exposure, 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 exposure. You see, we never know when the Holy Spirit will fall on dead souls and bring them to spiritual life. But you can be sure that it will not happen in a vacuum. It will not happen if Sunday becomes play day instead of worship day. It will not happen if you look the other way and let the sin of your youth go unchallenged. As David did time and time again. Why did Absalom take matters into his own hand and orchestrate the murder of of Amnon. Because after the rape of his sister Tamar by Amnon, David didn't do a thing about it. That's why. Now that doesn't make it right, what Absalom did. But you can see, at least, the underlying philosophy. David's brand of love I say this kindly, was a love of self. He could not, he could not 
bring himself the temporal pain of disciplining his children for the good of their souls. He just couldn't do it. And so Solomon writes these words, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish him with the rod, he will not die. Punish him with the rod. Notice the next phrase. Punish him with the rod and save his soul from death. Proverbs 23, verse 13 and 14. Oh, oh, there's a connection between temporal punishment and spiritual salvation. Yeah, because you're working on the rebel heart. And so it's discipline plus teaching in righteousness. And both are bathed in much prayer. And that's what David could have done, but he didn't do. And of all, all of his sons, with the exception of Solomon, and even Solomon sinned greatly, but Solomon at least is among the redeemed. But all of his sons perished in unbelief. What a great grief. No parent should have to contemplate that. Now, if you do all within your power, and I'm talking about discipline, teaching and righteousness and so forth, if you're doing all within your power, and the Lord still doesn't save your kid or your grandchild and so forth, all right, fine, but that, that decision is of the Lord. And I don't think it can be laid, against your, uh, laid at your feet. But are we doing all we can do? Secondly, what about believers married to an unbelieving spouse, be it husband or wife? What's the solution for that? The solution is live the gospel in your home. Jesus put it this way, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone where? In the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Solomon. Good on teaching for parents. Read it in the Proverbs. I read some of them to you. Not so good on marital counseling. Primarily because he was such a failure as a godly husband. Wow. I mean, we have our sins. and The point I'm making is that you, as the believer in the home, are likely the only person... To set an example of fidelity to God and obeying the marriage mandate. What is the marriage mandate? Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That means sacrificially. And wives are to be submissive to the rule of their husbands like the church is submissive to Christ. There's the marriage mandate for both. Fail in these areas. And your spouse will smell the hypocrisy and ignore those times when you do speak of God's salvation. Well, you don't live it. Your religion hasn't done much for you. Some worry about the doctrine of election. Is my wife's name written in the Lamb's book of life? 
is my husband's name written in the Lamb's book of life. Reread Paul's words about Esau and Jacob. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Romans 9 verse 13. He's quoting from God in the Old Testament. I would say that God's hatred of Esau was premonition. He knew the course Esau would take. He knew Esau would become an immoral and godless man. But observe, observe. God's foreknowledge does not mean that God made Esau wicked and godless. No. Esau chose that course for himself. As do all people. James puts it this way. When tempted... No one should say, God's tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But, here it is, each one is tempted when? By his own evil desire. He is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James 1, verse 13 and following. That being said, all of us choose a pathway to death and destruction. But the hope of the gospel is this. Jesus' words, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. John 5, verse 24. Life and change happens this way. And this way only. Jesus says, whoever hears my words and believes. Exposure to the gospel is the only way life will come to the spiritually dead in your family tree. If you're here today as an unbeliever, I rejoice that you are making right choices, that you're doing the very thing necessary for God to win you to Himself. You're being exposed to the gospel. And the reason I'm talking about heartache in terms of unsaved relatives and friends is because it is a heartache. I cannot conceive. I cannot conceive of going to glory with God and my wife not being part of that family or my children because they're loved. You're loved. If you say, well, they'll miss me if I'm not there. No, they won't. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. There will be no remembrance of you. You're in another place, place of torment, place of fire where the worm dies not. And heaven wouldn't be heaven for any of your relatives or friends to be able to conscientiously contemplate that that's where you are and that's what you're experiencing so they will not remember you at all. I'm speaking from this side of glory. I'm speaking of the heartache now 
that we experience as mothers and fathers, as husbands and wives, when we see our family members going down paths of unrighteousness and knowing that they could be snuffed out of this life today, tomorrow, whenever. Instead of absent from the body, present with the Lord, it'll be absent from the body and destruction from the Lord. That's why it's a burden. And it's because you're loved. And don't forget it. It's because you're loved. Let's pray. Our Lord, these are not easy messages to preach, but they have to be said. Every one of us here, like I said in the opening remarks, every one of us here, fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, children, all of us know somebody, have somebody in our family tree or among our friends, to name another whole group, that are unsaved, and we love them. We want them to enter into the joy of our salvation. We want them to become part of the family of God. And they're not. They're not there yet. We are praying that we would be bold in our proclamation of the gospel, living out the gospel, especially in our families, disciplining our children so that they understand there is an authority in the heavens to whom they must give an account, not only to a dad and a mom who rules over them, but to the God who rules over mom and dad. I pray, Lord, that you would send your quickening spirit upon us. Lord, we're so stubborn. We are so entrenched in our selfishness and our love of sin and our hatred of the holy that unless you break through by your spirit, Unless you change us from the inside out, there will be no choosing of Christ and His salvation. Lord, woo us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that one of whom Jesus taught in John 6, who draws us to God, who enables us, He says in verse 65. Lord, enable the lost today to come. And as we leave this place this, this day, may we have a new dedication in our hearts this week, beginning this week, to live in a way in our homes that will testify of the grace of God. For our children and our grandchildren, may we be bold enough to discipline them in the things of God and not to worry about whether we're loved or hated by them or all of those things that we have fears of. David ruined his family. Lord, help us not to ruin our families. And if we have an unbelieving wife or husband, help us to live in such a way that they will hear the gospel and see it lived out in our lives. May we be different. And if we're not different, have we really been saved? Has that change come? We ask these things, firstly and foremost, for your own glory. For you are glorified every time someone passes from darkness into light. From the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of your precious Son. And then secondly, we pray for our own good. Bring healing to our homes, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.